HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Dyed Green on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. We took a few weeks off and we're back. We're about to launch into our new season. We've got a lot of amazing episodes lined up and we are very excited to get back into it. We absolutely love West Cork. It's one of our favorite places on the island of Ireland and we try to get there as often as possible. For those of you who are not that familiar with it, it's in the south west part of the country and it is known to be the food artisan capital of ireland and it's very remote and insanely beautiful and i think it's true that if you ask anyone about artisan food in west cork and honestly even in ireland in general the gabine name is one of the first names that always comes up it's referred to with reverence and um as a part of history of the development of artisan food here. Gabine Farm is a 250-acre organic farm, which is located in a village called Gabine, which is right outside of a town called Skull in West Cork. And the Ferguson family have been farming there and making food products since the 1970s when they first started making Irish farmhouse cheese. And I think it's like kind of hard to overstate how different things probably were back then. There was obviously no internet. There was no social media. So I would imagine starting a farmhouse cheese company was more like an effort in faith than anything else. You just made the cheese and it would have to be something that was so good that people would talk about it and spread it through word of mouth and buy it in the community and and get it all around, um, get it out there in stores. And that's how things were, but things today are different. So the question is, is how do you grow that food business from uh, a small project into something that'll, say, sustain a, a big and growing family or other interests? How do you keep yourself creatively fulfilled as well and not just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again? And how do you grow without reducing the quality and keeping the artisan focus and the spirit that started everything off? 
How do you grow without selling out? Our guest this week is the perfect person to answer that question. Fingal Ferguson has been instrumental in taking the Gabine Project to new heights. Fingal's parents, Tom and Gina, started the cheese business in the 1970s, shortly before, I believe shortly before Fingal was born. So he grew up surrounded by cheese. And as he got older, he opened and developed the smokehouse at Gabine, um, where he was in charge of smoking and curing meats. They also have, the farm also has a very big commitment to sustainability, which we talk a little bit about on today's show. And the Gabine, I mean, the Gabine cheese is incredible and the smokehouse products are world-class as well. And we were fortunate enough to have actually just tasted some of the chorizo just earlier today at Sheridan's Cheese in Galway. Um, And honestly, it's just like, it is really some of the most incredible stuff out there. Gabine doesn't actually do public tours because they just have way too much going on and don't have the capacity. However, we have had the honor of visiting the farm on a couple of different occasions. And, you know, one of the more interesting things that's happening there right now is Fingal's knife making project, which um, perhaps is a subject I find it to be really fascinating, but it's maybe a little bit nearer and dearer to your heart, Max, as a chef. Um, You know, the knife being probably the most important tool that you have in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, I think, I I love, I love a good knife and every chef does. And the craft that goes into creating a handmade knife is, is pretty incredible. The amount of work that goes into it and the amount of care and the time and the attention before talking to Fingal thought it was not anything like making sausage at the smokehouse. But as you'll see through our conversation, there's actually quite a lot of parallels between the artisan food making that they do at Gabine and Fingal's knife making project. So there's a lot of really interesting parallels that come together um, in making things by hand and making things from scratch uh, in a carefully sourced. Sure. And they, you know, they smoke the cheese sometimes. They smoke the meat. Don't really smoke the knives, but they do (laughs) heat them up to be pretty hot. Yeah. Wow. A lot of parallels there. Indeed. (laughs) Someone Um, had to do the the dad joke because there's no sci-fi in this episode, unfortunately. So we're really um, happy to talk to Fingal. His story is kind of the story of the evolution of artisan food and craft in West Cork. And we are really happy to present the interview to you all. Delighted, even. Delighted, some might say. Uh, So stay tuned. Uh, We'll talk to Fingal Ferguson and we'll hear about what's going on in West Cork and what's coming next. Well, this is really exciting. And um, thank you so much for coming on Diet Grain. We're super excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we've been to Gabine and visited the farm a couple times. And we think the place and, you know, the surrounding area, um, Skull and West Cork, they're all really very special. So we were hoping you could start off by telling us a little bit about your family's history on the farm and um, with the business that is Gabine, um, when did it start and what does the name Gabine mean? So Gabine is the name of the townland. It's um, I'm the, the fifth generation for the farm. Um, on the farm, my kids, the sixth. The, the, um, so my dad's, my dad's family, my, they've, I suppose we've always been dairy farmers down here. There's always been an agricultural background on my dad's side. My mom 
is the total opposite. Opposites attract. My, my, both my parents are completely different. And um, my dad's sort of background um, with sort of West Cork and the tradition of down here, it's kind of rural part of the very bottom of Ireland that's sort of far away from all the cities and, and remote in that respect. My mum came to visit um, uh, her godfather who lived in this area who had moved here. And um, so that my parents met. And long story short, they met. that led to, to the rest of us. But along the way, my mum's my background, she, was, she grew up in Spain, between Spain and England. Her father married again. And that Spanish side of things led to her um, uh, sort of the, the continental um, injection of sort of food and and passion for for that kind of side of things. My family's my mum's side have always been very much, you know, sort of gluttons and, and just loved food and lived for it. You know, thinking about every meal, you know, the day before, you know, the next meal, you know, and um, so my mom would have grown up making cheese as a kid on, on, you know, with in, in Spain and that kind of, that kind of stuff kind of came with her. So moving and meeting my father and marrying again or marrying my father and, and sort of having the milk from the farm, she would naturally just start to, to make some cheese um, here. And with great friends in the neighborhood, there was um, Meline's cheese and Doris cheese. So the Jeff Bates and Veronica Steele, who sadly is not with us anymore. And West Cork has this fascinating background where in the, you know, back in the sort of seventies, this huge movement of people post cold war and everything came to live in West Cork. And they brought with them this sort of knowledge base and this, this yearning for maybe foods they'd left behind and lovely um, John and Sally McKenna from the McKenna guide deduced that about 75% of all the artisan producers in Ireland were based in Cork. This one county, this one part of Ireland had 75% of all the artisan producers. And I think that came to this sort of conviviality, this this cluster of, of wonderful people sharing information. These people who'd left sort of cities, had this wonderful knowledge behind them, had merged wonderfully with the locals. They were doers and they were doing things for all the right reasons. You know, like my mum made cheese because she wanted to make cheese. She wanted to, to preserve... Um, um, you know, and and sort of fermentations, all these products, you know, that we've all come to love, all stem from from that kind of that that sort of yearning to to sort of master a little bit more, the challenge that it gives. And um, and I think that the gubbin cheese started with just a couple of cheeses being made on on the aga and the slow ring of the aga and a big pot to just growing to the company that it is today, um, over over the many years. So we were, that was great because we were actually really wanted to ask about that period of time um, in the 70s as, as, um, as cheese making started and, you know, your mom and your family became a big part of that, um, of that world. What was that like for you though? Like, what was that like for you to grow up and to be a part of that and to hear those stories and to kind of follow on to that legacy of, of that first wave of cheese making? I, it, it was mind blowing. It, it 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 was. I mean, I take so much of it for granted. Myself, my sisters, you know, we're all very close. But um, I think that for us, it was just natural and stuff happening around us. I mean, if you have a glut of vegetables, to be able to pickle them, preserve them, and you know, to stop them from, you know, there's no point chucking them out. You either bartered things or you learned how to preserve. So I think I always felt like West Cork revolved around the barter process. 
you know, that you had too many tomatoes, you gave that to somebody who didn't, and they gave you some fish because they were a fisherman or the beef guy, you know, or you had some guy who, when he's killing a pig, would, you know, share that with you in exchange for something else. It was just part of that rotation of gifting that made the world go round here. And, you know, th those little things, I mean, I'm, you know, everybody kind of had a little garden. Everybody had a few animals that would go into their freezer and, and everything else. So the, 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 the process of growing up and seeing all this, I mean, it, it probably shone more when you went to the likes of the agricultural shows or to food events. And then later on when the likes of slow food kind of came to this part and we'd have, you know, these sort of gatherings of people, um, there was interesting I suppose establishments like West Cork Leader and Future, which were these bodies designed to sort of um, help provide grants for companies to grow, but they also had this way of bringing us together. So whenever you did have an occasion that brought artisan producers together, it was first of all, very dangerous because most people work so hard at what they did that it was an excuse to have a few pints and, and kind of catch up. But the, the latter kind of led to sort of, meeting everybody else and who was new and who wasn't and meeting the people that you're selling the food to. Cause I think the clever thing about what was happening here was that if you did make food, you could go to a local shop or a local deli and you could ask the owner who probably worked behind the counter, you know, would you mind selling my product? And they would, and they'd pay you for it then and there. And you spent it in their shop, you know, that was self-perpetuating. It was brilliant. It's how it was just so that logic, uh, whereas nowadays you feel like you need a health and safety plan and you need to have your HACCPs and you need to have micro scheduling tests, you know, all these things that are the necessities of being a, a, a food grade company um, with perhaps one loophole, a gentle loophole, which would be the farmer's markets where you can still probably go to a farmer's market um, with you know, local laws abiding and products, you know, sell your, sell your wares. Um, so I think that, yeah, growing up with these people, uh, uh, you know, the cheese, the cheese world, if I was to focus on that, because that was my childhood, um, being a farmer, you're out there every day getting covered in, in mud and poo and you're sort of smelly and everything like that. Cheese world was the total opposite. You know, you were to scrub clean and go in and this immaculate sort of building and, and make this, this cheese. Um, but food, you know, was, you know, they always say the way to somebody's heart was through their stomach. So the cheese was this complex, wonderful product that has this tradition that's so honest in many ways, you know, using the fewest of ingredients, like literally just lactic cultures or also not lactic cultures, using starters and rennet and salt and, and the milk you, you can, using your skill, you can make this, this product that goes back, you know, to, to, you know, it's so far in history um, that I suppose you, you had this sort of connection back to the Irish monks who were probably the first people to actually document cheese making and, and put it down on paper. So Ireland has this true tradition to cheese making and cheese itself that I think was taken to the next level by the likes of France, um, um, for example. Um, and I think that all these people who make a fermented foods are a little bit mad. I think we all have to be a little bit crazy to make a product that can, that can just be so dipping and waning and, and sort of change with the seasons. And, you know, whenever you feel like, you know, what you're doing in the cheese world, you know, something will humble you and, and teach you. I mean, consistency is the backbone of every cheesemaker to be a consistent cheesemaker, to make the same cheese every day and all through the season.
And uh, I think that was what was fascinating is that every cheesemaker I knew growing up was a, was a character that was doing it for something really honest. Like if, if, if there was ever a point of having a business plan before they went into this, they would never have done it. You know, they, it was more that they had started in a small, humble way. They fell in love with the process, but even more so they fell in love with the people they were supplying it to and the, the, their connection to, to, the, to the food scene and the food world. Because I think that that was the backbone of, of the whole thing that kind of kept you doing it. It's really interesting to hear you describe it that way, because I think when most people think about cheesemaking, they just think about the act of, of the production and of the creation. Um, but to hear you describe it, equally important is the, the connection that it brings you between you know yourself and, and customers and how that sort of creates this sort of cycle. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. So thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, there was there was always, you know, this. I mean, we were one of the first of the farmhouse cheeses. I mean, like Melines was the first, um, Jeff and, and, and Doris, and then ourselves, followed by amazing cheeses like Cashel Blue and Coulet and, and others. And if you went around Ireland, all the farmhouse cheeses were almost very different. The, the, the first three, that Melines, Doris and Gabine, we all have some similarities that we were Ryan Ross cheeses. They were all friends. We had our own little tweaks that made it different, but there is almost um, this sort of West Cork, Rindwash cheese kind of connection. But overall, if you travel around Ireland, you know, there was this, diff- this variation that everybody kind of brought to the table, which led to very exciting cheese plates and cheese boards and restaurants. So if you do go into chapter one in, in Dublin, which is, you know, this amazing Michelin starred restaurant, and they bring around the cheese trolley, you go to Ballymaloo and the cheese plate comes around. The diversity of what was going on there was fascinating. And I think that that led to, and I remember when we started making cheese at around the same time, Neil's Yard Dairy in London was starting and Neil's Yard run by, you know, Jane and Randolph at the time, um, Randolph still very much, you know, doing amazing things there. What, what you have was a whole element of affinage and, and places that would take our cheeses and, and, I suppose like anything, most things don't like captivity. If you take a, a good rindwash cheese and you sort of vac pack it and, and keep it in a fridge at, at you know, near frozen temperatures, you're pretty much killing the cheese. You're robbing it of, of much of its character. So having those people out there in the world that knew how to buy our cheese from us and provide it and, and sell it in, in a condition that, that actually it excelled or it, it, it shone was is something kind of fascinating because some cheeses are very temperamental compared to to others and um i think that's why i feel like a cheese like ours you had these relationships we knew that that we needed to have those relationships with people to communicate how the cheese should taste or how it should be stored and how it should be kept and what it should taste like and 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 i mean how it also adapts i mean a younger bean cheese the semi-soft rind washed cheese that has this kind of creamy buttery taste has a gentle rind when it's young but if you age it and mature it the bark can come a little bit you know sort of a little bit more uh you know i suppose depending on how it's kept but it can almost be the kind of rind you might even have to pick out of your teeth and it would be much more woody and, and sort of fun you know mushroomy and um, and I, I think that I remember this wonderful story of a great friend of ours called Lee Tiernan, who's behind Black Axe Mangal in London, and how how we initially met him. And my, well, my mum did initially was uh, he used to take a very ripe gabine and he would cut the rind off our cheese and he would put it into cream. This is when he was working with uh, Fergus Henderson, 
and um, he would he would take that cream and he would whisk it up intensely after it'd been heating for a while at a low heat, and uh, he would use that sort of whisked up infused cream with sort of dry aged beef or, or steaks and things like that as a sort of a companion. And uh, what was fascinating was that somebody who took something of ours around and, and almost that most people would cut off to throw away and turned it into a total asset for a dish or, or something that kind of both, that, that, I don't know, basically part of us, we just kind of got soft on the inside because it was like this, it was something quite brilliant, but it was enhancing the, it, it just took a little essence of us. And how do I even say this kind of stood it out. I, and I think that that a relationship grew from that because um, I, yeah, I think when you fall in love with the cheese, you fall in love with the, you know, there's a like-minded kind of connection to, to other people who also love cheese. We are all a bit mad, as like I said. I love that. It, you know, it makes me think of this idea of um, cheese as a, a living thing that grows and evolves, you know, even after you first create it. And then also, I don't think people talk enough maybe about the, uh, maybe in the cheese world they do, but in the general food world about the idea of the terroir of cheese and how cheeses that are made in, in different parts of the world and even in different parts of Ireland, um, you know, take on different characteristics from from the places um, that they're created. It's fascinating. Like the, the, the salt, I mean, like we're right on the coast. So the salt that is in the air gets into the grass, which the cows kind of eat which comes through in the milk the the herd of the farmers herd like we're, we're lucky that that we do have our own farm here and we produce our milk that we use in our cheese so we're sort of like the 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 you know what's that that expression they kind of use where you're sort of like a single single bean estate or you know if your own coffee you know everything is it's our own it's our own herd and that herd has been designed entirely around producing milk for cheese making um, so the 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 protein and the quality of the milk and even the fact we have a couple of old traditional breeds like the Kerry cow, which was one of Ireland's oldest breeds, you know, having fun things like that, you know, that allow us to to literally create the best cheese that we can. But if you were to take Gabine cheese and brick by brick, take the entire building and take it to another part of the world and start to make the cheese there, it would be a different cheese, you know, even over a matter of time. It's like me lending, you know, giving you a sourdough mother that we've always had here and you start the sourdough, it's going to become something else. Microbiology is one of those things. And I've always kind of thought was, it either scares the living shit out of you or it amazes you. You know, it, it is something kind of fascinating. And, and I think um, that's kind of the backbone of, of cheese is, is that sometimes the wildest, most exciting cheeses are not the squeaky clean magical thing i mean there's there's more microbiology kind of going on at the surface of a cheese than there is uh, as the number of stars in the sky they are fascinating fascinating things well we've talked a little bit about um about the origins of gabine can you tell us a little bit about what's happening about how it fits into the community of artisan producers in uh in west cork today well i, I, I don't know i suppose i suppose how we fit in well the interesting thing is, I suppose you can see that that Ireland itself has got, you know, there's a lot of things kind of going on. I mean, agriculture is the backbone of, of Ireland. You know, there's a lot of things kind of coming from that. And you have everything from the sort of the amazing veg growers, the smoked salmon, the, you know, the, there's a lot of creativity. 
I think Ireland's background comes from a lot of simplicity in products. I mean, we really were the country of meat and two veg. You know, you have good ingredients, don't mess around with them. You know, we, we're not really known for herbs and spices and sort of curries, and we're not known for other things. It was just good fish or good stew and, and, and those kind of type of things. But I think as a people, we've traveled the world a lot and, and you know, we did learn to kind of get out there. I know that we should, you know, the Irish, I mean, our, our greatest exporters, we, we've sort of, we've, we've bred our way around the world. <laughs> In some kind of ways, the Irish have planted their, their, you know, that side of things everywhere. So maybe we're visiting all of our cousins that are in the furthest part, corners of the world. But on those travels, I feel that there is a curiosity in the Irish. I think that that if you see any Irish person going out shopping, there'll always be multiple staples and perhaps one thing in their shopping basket that they never had before. And I think that really allows products to kind of get off the ground or or, or to to kind of go into the the curious nature of of sort of helping startups getting going. Um, like here, here ourselves, like, on, I mean, I grew up with the cheeses I was mentioning with my parents. When I was about four years old. My parents started making the cheese. When I was a teenager, back to the Spanish connection, I started making cured meats because we always had pigs in the farm. So from there, I started curing bacon and ham, thanks to um, a lovely friend of the family's, Chris Jepson, who um, was a, a salmon smoker. He he used to smoke the cheeses for us. I think we were the first place to, to smoke cheese in Ireland. And while smoking the cheese, we would thank him by giving him a side of pork. Um, and he would then give us back some smoked bacon that he had smoked pretty much like he would. And then when he retired many, many years ago, he retired and gave us the blessing to build a similar smoker here. I was a teenager at that stage. And helping my dad build a smoker, that led to... to um, to me feeling connected to it. So I felt compelled to help light the smoker and take care of the smoker. And then you're also like, well, like any teenager thinking, what else can I smoke? <laughs> you know? but, that, but if we are going to talk about sort of the food, I mean, I gave everything a shot. So, Hey, we have some pork. Let's, let's make some bacon. Let's make ham like Chris. And like, Oh, all these trips I was taking to Spain and eating this chorizo. Well, what is this amazing salami? What is this spicy, bright, bright colored, fantastic thing. And that led to us making some of our own chorizo. So, I mean, you know, nearly, 30 years ago as a like a young kid i would have made a batch with my parents and because of the cheese world there was many people supporting us and sort of saying oh why don't you make more of that so i did as a teenager i started making more salamis and cured meats now the interesting thing about that is is that they share this connection of fermentation so again it was a product that i kind of latched onto and, and got curious about so we have a copy of the gabine book um which is really beautiful i think it's it's really nice how it's kind of part cookbook and it's the story of the farm, but also of your family. And, you know, I had read in there, um, you know, that you mentioned um, the influence that Chris Jepson had on you and you just brought him up. And and I'm, um, you know, wondering then, it sounds like your relationship with him and smoking the cheeses um, was part of this kind of more like natural evolution into smoking the meats. Between the cheeses and the cured meats, they're both very opposite. Like I said, tying back to the agricultural side of things, it it kind of led to perhaps us meeting uh, even a larger group and not just being so insular in the world of cheese. You know, there was, and there always will be, I think this fascinating connection between food producers and chefs. And what happens is that by growing up, I think like I was talking earlier on about growing up with cheesemakers and food producers, 
you know, and slow food, which I'm, I'm sure you, you you know a lot about. Slow food was fast. My mum was the, the the governor for slow food in Ireland, so it meant that there was lots of trips to to, to Italy and, and traveling around, or being parts of the, the conviviums that were sort of the meetings that were kind of happen here in Ireland. And what I I think was amazing was that there was one point where I feel like food producers were highly celebrated. You know, isn't it great? Thank goodness for all these these wonderful eccentric characters making the wonderful products in all around the world and doing the things. But we're nothing without people knowing our product and knowing how to use it, where they can buy it and how they can, you know. So if you you, you shouldn't really just be able to get this product by going to a very high-end restaurant and having as a little dot of something on the corner of your plate. You know, there is delicatessens and the more unusual it is, the less likely you are to buy it because you're lost. So when a chef actually names you and names your product on the, and uses it in a creative manner in your dish, it opens up the palate to, to, to all the customers who perhaps, for example, come down on holiday to this part of the country and meet us face to face. And all these circumstances probably make you make you customers for life. If they know you're part of the world, they've had your products somewhere else, they've met you as a person, you prove that you weren't a dick. <laughs> you know? and, and then that leads to, to this sort of connection. I mean, I wish that we had our doors open more here in Gabina and did tours, but there aren't enough hours in the day. But I remember there was a little bit of that when I was younger. All these things are, are vital parts of sort of getting your product out there. I mean, Gabina has been, I mean, I'm 40 something years old now, I've stopped counting. But there is, there is this thing where, where persistence and time and a quality product and, you know, and these things do help to put and, and get a product out there. And, um, and I think that so many people that, that come to mind, if you do go to the delicatessens and, and, and you do go to the restaurants and you see that the, the long running hitters and the, the people who've been doing it for a long time, it's not just down to the quality of the product. There's numbers of factors that, you know, the, the decency of the people, the, the, the honesty of the product. And, you know, maybe there's so much more I could talk about that. And I think there is a diversity in Ireland that is fascinating, you know, in, in, in that broad spectrum of, of, of products that, that we kind of come up with. But I think for most people, it, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's driven on by, by, by a passion and a pride. How do you balance the desire to, get in front of more people and share your story with more people with the reality that sometimes growing too big can separate you from what originally inspired you. Oh, success. Success can be sometimes the worst thing to happen to a company. I mean, if, if you do have that ability to grow, there is this point, uh, this dangerous crossover point. Um, I mean, for us, you know, it's, you know, a great line, if it was easy to do, then everybody would do it, you know, and, and I think cheese, salamis, all these kind of things that we're, we're many of the products that we're doing here, what happens is that the, um, they're, they're tied into multiple steps. So for milk, the amount of milk we have, it depends on how many cows we have, which is the amount of milk we can fit into our vat. The amount of cheeses we can make from that is a physical workload that maybe, you know, how many of those will fit into our brine baths. And after the brine bath, the curing rooms, they take two and a half to three weeks to age in our curing rooms. So will we overload our curing rooms? And then how much time does it take to wrap and get those ready and, and get them out? And that rotation in this is small building that is made from these gigantic old traditional stone walls that are sort of three to four foot wide that kind of help keep the building warm in winter and cool in summer. You know, if we were to try and suddenly recreate things, 
and and play around with that if you overload your curing curing rooms you 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 can you might affect the cheese if you if you stop the certain steps that make your cheese unique to kind of give a, a loophole that speeds the whole process up those little incremental changes for efficiency can alter the product and then you accidentally find yourself at one point just making a generic product that's the same as everybody else um and i think the same happens with the smokehouse we can butcher so many pigs that we can fill our smokers with that we can age in our in our curing rooms and any one of those that we overload or we or we do in in a half-assed manner affects the quality um, so I think that that kind of happens across the board with, with those products that are not easy to do. And I, there was a, there was a fascinating story. I remember when I was younger of a company that tried to copy and clone Gabine. And I remember it kind of being one of those stories kind of go, gosh, you know, isn't this heartbreaking? They're trying to copy our cheese. And a couple of years later, we got a phone call from this person we didn't realize. And it turns out that company hadn't hit their challenge of meeting 1000 ton of cheese you know, uh, 100,000 ton of cheese in first year. So they, they decided to scrap the whole product. And they were, we were the first people that got, got the phone call to see if we wanted this um, secondhand equipment at half price that it would have cost off the shelf. So what was a, a sort of instinctively a sort of a, you know, one of those almost like horrible things to happen turned into the best thing that ever happened for us, where we were suddenly able to upgrade all of our shelving in our, in our, in our curing rooms for quality because a large industrial kind of like a large creamy had decided to make a, a version, but it turned out the workload was too much. And, and it was just one of those cheeses that needed to be a hands-on made product. And, um, and I think, yeah, it, it, it kind of lenses. And that, that's what I often see in many of the cases of the, the products that stand out. There just is no mechanization for many of the, the process and the jobs. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. I'm curious, was there ever... A, a time in your life where you felt like you might not want to get involved in the family business or was it something that you just kind of always knew you wanted to do? I might answer that a different way and sort of say that my parents never said I, I was inheriting the farm. I had to take it over and this was all going to be on my shoulders. And my anxiety levels and my nerves and all these things sometimes wish I wasn't so heavily involved because there's a thousand things a day. You know, I get more than 60 messages an hour, you know, the things that kind of constantly happen. But what does naturally kind of occur, you know, and, and kind of come upon you and, and why I probably got into the food business is that that feeling of connection and the people and, and what you're doing it for. And I feel that we make food for people that we like and get along with. We don't sell our cheese to companies that we don't enjoy working with. We, you know, and we have these relationships. And I think that's one of the bigger parts of it. I think that I would probably, if I would probably go mad if, 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 if I didn't have anything to do, I, I love my probably overloaded, chaotic kind of life. But 
it's driven on by by the people that we work with the, the you know the the, the the other staff and wonderful people here in Gabin that help us to make the cheese and and the cured meats but but more than anything i think that yeah if i could have done i could have become an architect by the fact that i'm terrible at maths i think that there is i i would have my parents would not have disowned me or done anything if I'd gone on to do something else. But how can you not get lured into an industry where everybody is so wonderful and you, you know, and, and there is, there's just so many things that pull you in and I couldn't think of anything else. I mean, we, you know, you, you do hear these, you know, you get those wonderful spam emails from somebody like, Hi, I'm such and such an investor, and we would like to buy your company for yada yada yada. It's you know signed sincerely, Nigerian prince of wherever. I'll give me your bank account details. But it it does put these funny little things into context about you know if somebody was to say, listen, X amount, can I buy Gabine? And I think the first answer to your head is like, no. I mean, it's it's our home. It's connected to us. It's it's what we do, and you know all that. I think it is something that we wouldn't walk away from and, and I feel so connected too. So I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I um, was hoping next that you could talk a little bit about um, the family knife, which you discuss in the Gabine book. Um, you mentioned, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, uh, you know, you mentioned that your um, that it was, it was a knife that your family had that um your grandfather used to use to butcher pigs, and I think your then your father would use it, um, I think, to cut toast for, for Sunday breakfast and then also to carve meat. Um, and then, you know, one thing that I thought was really cool is that y- you said that your father used to sharpen the blade by running it up and down alongside the wall of your house. Oh, the old, the old worn down stone wall outside. Yeah, it, it was probably taken for granted. I mean, it's not one of those things until I became a knife maker myself that I actually, um, that I kind of acknowledged what it was. I mean, in, in, in most ways, like back to the simplicity of the Irish palette, I think, you know, the Irish standard tools of the trade were, were very simple objects as well. And imagine a sort of a bread knife, but without the serrations and with a simple wooden handle. And I, I, I remember... There was a there's um this kind of knife was a, was a high carbon steel blade that that sort of had this this kind of handle that probably over years of accidentally being put in the washing machine or in the sink had sort of become damaged over a long period of time. And there is a, a friend of our family's, a wonderful guy called Rory Connor, who's a knife maker, probably about half an hour drive from here, based in Ballylicky. And Rory was one of those people you would go to to get a very special gift for somebody, you know, like a wedding present or, or something like that. Um, and I think as f- being obsessed as food as, as, as we were as a family, the um, one of those wonderful things is the knife as a tool of the trade. I mean, if you're going to butcher, the knife is essential. If you're a chef, if you're if you're going to eat your food, you know, and cook your food, and and those those things that connect you, like family, is an incredibly important thing for us. So feeding your family is 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 this thing that that was just part of a ritual. Um, so the knife is something kind of wonderful to us, and I think that that led on to me becoming a knife maker afterwards. But um, I think I remember 
my mum always had, and, I, and my dad as well, you could always say that there, there would be these very bling, fancy knives that sort of would show up or maybe a gift from some people. But what is it that makes those knives your go-to, the, the one that you always reach out for? And in this case, the, fam- the old family knife, which was, 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 wasn't the prettiest knife in the world, but it always had a keen edge and it was always there. Uh, you know, it was the one my dad would sort of reach out for. And, um, and I think that led to me sort of, kind of carving my own path later on as, 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 and kind of getting more involved in, in knife making, which, which is, there's a whole other story into itself. Yeah. That's actually a perfect segue. We wanted to ask about your knife making work and in particular, like something that struck me um, when we visited your workshop was sort of the difference between the style of production of the, of, of the knives versus the smokehouse or the cheese making process where, you know, the knife, your knife making process is incredibly, uh, labor intensive, hands-on, very handmade. And it's almost like a one at a time kind of process. Whereas the, um, you know, even though the, uh, smokehouse is still an artisan product, you know, it's more leaning sort of towards the commercial side of things. So I I was curious about whether you saw it that way or. I think, I think you can, I mean, in a modern day, you can see anything that can, you know, what are those steps that, you know, can change a product's quality, but but actually takes the physical hands out of the job? I mean, like we all know that the more people you have to hire, the more expensive it is to sort of make a product. And, you know, so, you know, the other way of looking at it is that there's many people now don't want to have a terrible job. They don't want to have a mundane, boring, repetitive kind of job. To be fair, everybody likes to feel part of something that that is is a more pivotal role or creative or reward, rewarding in that kind of way or manner. So if we can take away horrible jobs, like let's say nobody wants to wash everything by hand. Isn't it great when there's a washing machine or there's a power hose, you know? And if we do have certain things like the automatic cleaning machine for the salamis as opposed to tying everything up by hand, there's a, there's a nostalgia by looking at the beauty of a hand-tied salami. But, you know, the, the clipper manages to help us make them twice as fast. So I think I still feel that we're very small very physically handmade kind of product in the way of the cheese and the, and the salamis. Um, but what we do and what I did learn about knife making came from the, the, that element of looking at production as a system and what can you do in the way of batch production. So let's say I don't actually physically make a knife from beginning to end as and I take a piece of steel cut out one blade and take that through every step, all you know, 50 steps to sort of being a finished knife at the end, because that would just be very painful. So what I'll do is I will sort of cut up multiple blades. I'll heat treat them all at the same time. I'll have 20, 30 different shapes and sizes. We'll cut up pieces of wood and all the wood that arrives in at one time into the sizes and, and pieces that I need, or I will, you know, I'll prep everything that I can do in waves so that when it actually comes down to it, I'm cherry picking out the heat treated ready blade, the, the handle materials that are half prepared for me, and then com- going through the more the, the parts of the process that you're forced to do very much hands on. So the grinding and the um, and the polishing and the buffing and, and the shaping and all these kind of things of the knife making. So knife making was was one of those things I kind of got into, and it was a craft. Like I said, the, the, this whole element of of like food was something that that you know you went to somebody's you know got to somebody's heart through their stomach. This this interesting thing about the craft, the tool was that. It, 
kind of grew this friendship I had with these chefs and everybody else who had this feedback, this, this available feedback from people who, who were using my knives. Now I made one on, I, I started into it in a very selfish manner of actually just learning how to sharpen a knife, how to repair the ones I had, you know, and how to get into it. That led to me actually being quite fascinated by it because in making a knife like I had with Rory Connor, who I mentioned earlier, or perhaps with likes of Owen Bush who's in the UK who did these workshops I, I was amazed by the the challenge of it, first of all, because it is not simple. The attentions in the 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 detail, like the 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 millimeters will change the beauty of a knife to being something just slightly off. And we haven't even kind of gone into the whole world of of heat treating and the 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 quality of the steel, the edge retention, how easy it is to sharpen, the balance, the feel, the fact that it can put up with the utmost abuse, you know, the materials of being hot, cold, wet, dry multiple times a day. And then still having the reputation of needing to be an heirloom that would be passed on to your great, great grandchildren. You know, so, you know, some of those things don't have a hope, you know, of, of getting to a, a grandchild if it, if it's used to sort of open tins of paint and, <laughs> and, and sort of like scrape paint off walls and do things like that. But if you do make something like that, there is this chance like, like happened with me to inherit knives and they'll, they'll need a bit of TLC and love, but they can go down that road. So what makes a wonderful knife a wonderful knife was something that, that, you know, got, had me curious, you know, why was my mom's favorite knife, the one that had the, the, the half broken handle and, you know, the, the things when there was a, a sort of a, a fake Damascus sort of whatever one that was hanging next to it, she never used. And so the craft world was wonderful. And like I mentioned earlier on the stresses of the food world, you know, waiting for your micro results to come back on, on whatever, or the, or the courier that hadn't arrived or the delivery that wasn't, you know, of your packaging that was going to be delayed, whatever, or somebody who was on holidays. And, you know, there's always something that that's, that's going to be there in the food world. So what was lovely was to sneak into a workshop and leave your problems behind you and to make something that was physical, tangible product that was going to, to sort of, you know, not get eaten. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that, that product kind of taught me a lot of things and uh, like making physically making something was kind of rewarding in a different manner. I was very much making these knives for myself, but in, in doing that, you know, you'll always find a friend who asks you to make one for them. And then it kind of grew from there. And, um, and while I'm in making knives, I'm often thinking about a salami or a cured, you know, the cheese or, or resolving a problem. Do you know that one where you, 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 there's a name on the tip of your tongue and you're trying to remember it and you sort of, you know, and when you stop thinking about it, it will come back to you. And that was, I often find like the solution for a problem would come to me when I'd sort of switched off and gone into the workshop to go and make something, or it was the calming effect or, or something just different that, that helped me. So it, it became my, um, my, my, my therapy <laughs> in some ways. Um, but, but more than anything, it then grew into a business that actually almost became probably, you could almost say bizarrely better known in some ways than, than even Gabine through social media and, and all that kind of side of things. But um, they intertwine. I mean, just like, I think you wouldn't, you wouldn't give out about a, you know, a writer having a Montblanc pen, you know, this very expensive, very elegant pen. It makes sense. It suits, it, it fits that somebody whose life is dedicated to, um, to writing, you know, you know, you can buy a, you know, pen for, for less than a Euro in a shop, but, you know, doesn't it make sense to have a really good pen that just kind of, 
ties you into it. And if you use a, you know, a, a knife is one of these fascinating things that you, you're in the kitchen. It feeds your family. It makes mundane tasks easier, but also they are steps and part of your, your life. You can look at your knife magnet or your, or your drawer and over your history of time, you can remember that that was the pairing knife you got going into, into culinary school, or that was the chef knife that was given to you as a present at some point, or that was the one that the wonderful friend forgot when he left behind before leaving, you know, or, or there's something you picked up when you're on holiday in Spain. And, and these little collections of knives that grow over your life tell stories and they can become keystones. And, um, and I think that, that, you you the more you you kind of get into it the more fascinating it kind of is and there is a knife out there for every job in the world from specifically chopping udon noodles to to sort of a mushroom knife to i mean they're just so vast and varied but really we only need two or three in a knife a knife drawer to to, to cook a meal but um it just opens it all up and and making them is fascinating i've discovered that what one person loves another person might hate and, and, and to never put yourself in that box. And um, I, I went into the knife world with one sort of golden rule that I was never specifically going to take orders to make a knife for one person. Cause I knew that that was going to put me back into the world of, of, of obsession. And, and if, if somebody put in an order where a knife for a specific shape and size and handle material, I was going to end up making that knife wondering the entire time, were they going to like it? And I think having grown up making food, you're making knife for everybody and you are making a product that you yourself loved and knew, and that's how you kind of liked it. And you're hoping that others would. And I think that that, that was kind of something I was used to. So by making a knife, I wanted to make a selection of knives that somebody could choose from because I didn't want that concern or that obsession with somebody not liking it. And maybe I'm just too much of a pleaser in that respect. So I think that led to my own specific style of, and that helped with the growth of where I have been over the years with nice, because I didn't find myself boxed in to just making one bit over and over in a routine because I was taking specific orders. So when someone orders a knife, what do they not exactly know what they're going to get at the end of the process? Or is it picking from a category of styles? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, at, at present, I'm actually about to change the system because I, I suppose I've been making knives since I was, for the past probably, I mean, nearly 15 years, but I feel like the past 12 years I've been, I've been sort of selling them. And actually, I've probably been making them longer than that, but I feel like I've been, I've been prouder of them for the past 12 years. And um, the whole process was based around, around the sort of the thing of, of actually having enough of a selection of knives that when somebody's turn came up on the, the waiting list, they got to choose from that selection. So, I mean, like right now I have upstairs in, in the, you know, in, at my house, I have probably about 80 to hundred knives from the different pairing knives and chef knives. So there's an amazing selection there to choose from, but I felt I needed to give that selection so that somebody had something to choose from, because again, I was desperately trying to not, um, get caught into specifically you know because again it, it 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 if you do try to make a knife for somebody to the exact measurement and details it's 20 emails back and forth and finally they get it and it's like oh i don't know really what it was that was exactly what i had in mind sometimes you if somebody has an idea in their mind you might not ever be able to to match those expectations 
And I think what's lovely is for someone to see what you do and how you do it and to be given a choice from that. It's it's a different mentality. And actually, they might be prouder and happier or, or fall in love with that knife more because of, of, of the position that's come from. And again, they can always send it back or refund or swap. But but for me, I think that was something that not that that diversity of always being able to experiment and make something different or adapt or change my 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 knife design led to an accelerated growth in my knowledge base of 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 and and I suppose where how I've got to to where I am today with knives because I've just constantly been changing and adapting. So what's the next? That was actually going to ask about that. So you said you've been making knives for. Uh, around 15 years, but maybe proud of them <laughs> enough to sell for tw- for 12. So since then, what's been like the evolution of your knife making practice? What's changed and like, where do you see it heading in the future? Are you happy with your entire system and the products? Or do you think you'll make changes? And are there any new, um, maybe like new types of steel that you haven't gotten to try yet or anything like along those lines? Yeah, well, I think... I think that there is the one of the things that kind of stands out is that there is very much so this um, with the with the knives, yeah. There's a great community, just like there is in the food world. So I've come to know through Instagram and everything else, fellow knife makers. So you do fall in with. There's even specific podcasts just for knife makers that I listen to while making knives. They become friends, become contacts. You can you can get in touch with. I can get in touch with any of these wonderful guys and say, look, I'm having trouble with 52100 high carbon steel heat treating, and they'll give you feedback and pointers. And no one holds back because no one has secrets. Because again, it's one of those products that's so physically hands on that you either. You know, you 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 know, you're willing to do the work or you're not, and that then leads on to to certain things like um, all the good knife makers I know of have waiting lists. You know, everybody out there because if you go to a knife factory, they're mechanized in such a process they're making hundreds of knives a day, and I think some of the top knife makers I know that have a very simple or honest or very thought out product can probably maybe make 25 a week. Some people I know make anything from three or four knives a week and hobbyist guys, maybe one or two. And then the, the guys who make those very high-end knives, it can take weeks to make the Damascus billet to then make into the knife for, for, for that side of things. So there, there's a, a plethora of, of sort of, of options kind of out there. Now, that leads to the adaptation of where I started and where I want to be. I think I want to, to sort of have a product that I'm proud of. And I, I kind of want two things. I want one to be able to always make knives that will expand my knowledge base. So I'll always be chasing the new thing, the different thing, the different material I've never worked with before. Um, and maybe making those very high-end, fancy kind of wonderful knives that take a bit of knowledge. But that can be stressful as well because the... If you know, a friend of mine had a great line, this is thousand euro knives come with thousand euro problems. <laughs> you know, if you sell something very expensive, a very expensive knife, and it's not 100% perfect, and somebody's buying that, they're going to have an issue with it in a bigger way than somebody who bought a cheap knife that was just something honest and honorable. And, you know, it's like if it, with a food product, if you sell something for far more than it costs in a supermarket or shop, people are going to analyze. And rather than just enjoying it for what it is, they're going to question why it was that much more expensive and why it was worth that. So, yeah, yeah. So I think value for money versus versus everything else. Now, there's an aesthetic that kind of comes with products. And there is people who understand value for money, like, there is this point where Damascus steel is incredibly expensive to make. So to make that, that is something that stands out. And then 
it's time over over ingredients it's time over materials so if you're going to make free range organic salami or if you're going to make you know sort of you know if you're going to make a knife from from sort of damascus steel and 40,000 year old mammoth ivory and a bog oak you know it's going to you know you're expecting a certain price point so i think i i want to have those high-end sort of knives that just challenge me as a knife maker but i also want to make a good old honest knife that people can can afford um in a category of a handmade handmade knife so i'm I'm trying to work both of those sides and i'm switching from this knife list to a, to a process of newsletter so once i've i've cleared off this this waiting list which um, I, I closed the list back in 2017. There was 980 people on the waiting list at that point. I just kept having babies and I kept <laughs> being pulled back into the family business. And, and I think that that slowed down that. And, and I mean, it, there, w- there was a sort of a max number of knives, like two, two big knives and a small knife was the max that each person on that list could, could get. And even that found silly. The, the, the list became too much of the, the thing. You know, when people were contacting me, they're, they're always talking about the list. You know, can I get on the list or what? where's the list at? What's happening? And it, there's something felt uncomfortable about that. So I, I'm very much looking forward to, and thanks to the great advice of my wife, there is this point now where I'm just, once I've finished this list, because I'm going to stand up to my word with all of those things, I'm then going to just make the knives I can make every month and release them on, on the, you know, on a, on a, via newsletter on the website. And, and I think that's something I'm looking forward to as well, because I don't need to have such a huge selection upstairs for somebody to choose from. It's going to be diverse. It's going to be different. It's going to be creative. It's going to change. And, and I think as long as people are buying them, um, I want to just have that, that variety. And I, you always want to get excited by it, because in many ways, maybe I'm more successful making pallets of food on the farm than I am making three or four knives a week, you know, or, or six or seven knives a week. So the, the thing that makes us do this is, is pride and passion. And knives are, are something that, that, that fuel my creativity. And, and I mean, what is that thing that you will, you know, that you will get up early for to jump out of bed because you're looking forward to doing that, you know, that job, that thing that would like, okay, I'm looking forward to doing this today, you know, and, and, or what is that one that you, you know, after the kids are in bed and everybody's asleep, you might sneak back down to the workshop to finish a project. You know, that's how much I'm still in love with knives that I still will, 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 will sort of see work as actually a hobby and, and a, a source of pleasure and, and, and creativity. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, that's great. No, well, it's, it, yeah, well, listen, it is a subject that, that I cut myself and burn myself with constantly. I mean, there's peril, <laughs> but there's beautiful peril. I love that. Well, you're almost at the point of being able to make the perfect artisan sandwich. You've got the meat and the cheese and the knife. So what's next? Well, my sister makes great bread and she also has the garden. Yeah, she has the garden. Um we don't have we don't have booze in the family. I think we 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 have um, there's no. I think in Ireland we tend to make very expensive vinegar as opposed to very good wine. Um, I think I think that 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 you know that might change. There's a couple of people doing it, of course, and I, I should probably <laughs> take that back. But the um, but yeah, I think I think yeah. I'm driven by so many things. I mean, look, like everybody else during COVID, I was making sourdough. You know, there is, you know, there is, I find that I'm always drawn to a challenge. If I ever master something, God knows that's, I'm, I'm going to be contradicting myself by saying you master something because you never do. I'm a man of many skills and master of none. But once you feel more confident in something, maybe you do move on to the next. I mean, why I didn't stop with salamis or, or, or knife making because 
I think they are something that you can adapt and go sideways with. Um, but yeah, I mean, like beer making and bread and all these fascinating things. It's all around the corner. It's just actually now that it comes to the point where there just aren't enough hours in the day. Um, I would actually happily, you know, I think sleep is kind of important. I mean, I, I probably survive. I survive. With, I'm lucky. I'm one of those people that kind of only need a you know five hours sleep a night. Um, but um, there is, um, yeah, I think I think I, the, the, the lure into the next project is always around the corner. I mean, you're clearly very passionate about the work that you're doing on the farm with the cheese and the cured meats and the knives. And I'm wondering, um, I know that you're part of a bigger community of food producers, but I'm wondering if there is somebody that um, is doing something, you know, whether it's in your area or a different part of Ireland that you think is particularly exciting right now, or if you have any um, kind of favorite places that you go to for, for other things besides meat and cheese. Oh, constantly. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to start avoiding naming names because I always find that the, 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 I don't want to, to leave anybody out. Uh, I always feel feeding my family is one of those things. That I, I don't know. Even, I mean, look, everything's becoming more expensive, you know, of late and there's all these kind of things. But, you know, there will, food and quality of food will, will still always be a priority in our house. So I think that we're blessed that down here you can go to the farmers market and meet the the, the veg growers and the bread you know that you know it's a good sourdough bread amazing local local veg those kind of things um, I think that the support and and that the, that's that's always incredibly important the I'm always fascinated by the creativity of of chefs and, and restaurants in Ireland to adapt and change and and to to do what they do. Um, so I love seeing um, wonderful people like Jess up in and in, in, in Kai and Galway and these 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 people that when you do find yourself in a in a rut or routine of cooking those dishes you've always cooked the same time you know that that somebody will will who comes to visit the you know comes to visit here in West Cork there's nothing like having one of these wonderful people in our lives that I mentioned earlier on next to you in your kitchen with kids running around causing absolute chaos as part of coming down visiting us in our madness here in Gabin cooking with us and teaching me something that's been under my nose the entire time uh, I cannot thank my friends enough for that and and I'm looking forward to the next thing I will learn from an experience like that that I chase more than anything and um and I think that you know I, I'm I'm yeah, I, I think that the the creativity in the next generation of people here in Ireland, I think it's a lot harder to, if you do have a goal to open up a food business, the ready-to-eat foods in life, the food that somebody can take out of a pack and put it straight in their mouth, I know there's so much more complex, you know, hassle involved in that. You know, there, there is more rules to make sure that nobody gets food poisoning in life. So there's rules that kind of come with that. And those people who who go through the process of, of of getting there incrementally, bit by bit, and slowly kind of getting a product off the ground, I've got so much respect for them in doing that um, because it's not as easy as it used to be. I think like you know, do you remember that that chocolate the chocolate fondant that was called Goo G U Umlaut? That was a that was actually a branding team that had the product brand before they had a product. You know, they had a brilliant name and they said, oh, well, why don't we make a chocolate fondant? And then another company probably made it and the branding team put it together. 
I think you, you will find that that tends to happen a lot more where people probably come up with the idea and ask for somebody else to make it. And part of me always loves those people who actually are the ones who, who make a very difficult, honest product for their own family. And then they start making it for friends. And then it just grows more naturally into because it was such an honest, highly flavored, amazing product that people were, had such demand for that they just compelled to grow and grow over time. And it becomes the next product. And there's so many people that, I, I can, that, that, that are out there doing this that need the support. And I think that's where farmers markets and shops and delis that, you know, that, that have that connection to those people need to be supported in the restaurants that buy from these smaller suppliers, smaller people, they need the support to keep that going because they're the real honest engines. Absolutely. Well, after, after the show, you can give us their, their names and we'll make sure to interview them on the next episodes of, of Diet <laughs> <Green>. please. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. This is a really lovely conversation. We loved hearing about everything you're working on and really look forward to hearing about, if anything, what's what's coming next. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Sorry if I monologued. I always tend to, to, to go on and on, but the, no, it was, it was a pleasure. That's okay. That's really... why you're the guest. <laughs> okay. But listen, I really, really thank you for having me on the show. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe dyed green is a project of bog and thunder whose mission is to highlight the best of irish food and culture through food tours events and media find out more at bogandthunder.com we'd love to hear from you if you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.